Hello, and thank you for listening to A Mo Story. My name is Joe Enos. This is a weekly podcast where I will cover different topics and provide you stories from my own life. I'm a gay man, an immigrant from the Azores Islands, a brother to seven siblings, a Seattle resident, a healthcare worker, and sometimes just a guy with a microphone ranting. Thank you for listening to A Mo Story. This is episode number 11, which will be titled Hospital Stories. Each week, we peel back a little bit more of the onion and learn more about me and the stories of my life. This week, I thought we should cover what I do for work and my hospital stories. Most are funny, and I think you will enjoy them. No HIPAA will be violated, and they are all just kind of random things that have happened to me since I started working in a hospital. I began my tour of working in a hospital, as we will call it, in 1994 when I was in high school. There was a regional occupational program that I was allowed to participate in, and I actually started in the marketing department at the hospital. Very quickly into that role, I became bored. The girl who had selected surgery had actually decided that she didn't like being at the hospital and dropped out, and so they had asked me at that time if I was interested in going into surgery. Now, I was the kid who spent weekends at the library looking at encyclopedias and trying to learn and just know random everything's about everything. So when they said, do you want to go to the operating room and observe and learn about surgeries? I said, hell yeah. And quickly I learned that they were just going to let me stand there and watch and not really do anything. And I kind of became bored. And so I started helping out as a senior in high school and they let me. I mean, I wasn't like doing craniotomies or total hip replacements. I was assisting with going and grabbing sterile supplies, uh, helping someone schedule something in the computer, you know, little things like that that really didn't require me to have a license or advanced training at that time. When I graduated from high school, they asked me if I wanted to work there, and I did. I was an assistant. I would do different things in the OR. I would help in the PACU. I would do anesthesia teching. I would schedule patients. And they taught me how to scrub sterile cases. My first sterile case I ever scrubbed was in 1994, just after my high school graduation in the summer. And I scrubbed a total hip arthroplasty. I got to sit there for hours on end, holding a retractor in someone's hip and keeping the fat away from the bone so they could see what they were doing. The first few stories come from this time period, 1994 to 97, when I was working in an operating room at Emanuel Medical Center in Turlock, California. It had, I believe, five OR suites, which were new and was big for the area. I was 18 years old and had the mind of an 18-year-old. My badge had a sticker on it that said I was a breastfed boy, which everyone thought was hilarious. And I had learned how to schedule advanced surgery procedures, and they allowed me to do that. In the winter months around Thanksgiving and Christmas, the OR gets slow. People obviously don't want to have surgeries and be recovering during holidays, as well as they don't want to not eat right before a holiday. So there was this procedure that was really embarrassing at the time, and it was called an anal condyloma surgery. And what it was is for people who had anal warts, they oftentimes grow kind of like a grape grows um, in that they're little bushels and they actually kind of hang. We would do a procedure where we would bring a laser in and we would actually burn off the anal warts and people would no longer have them. Around the same time, my friend, Fartlene, who I went to high school with, also got a job at the hospital working as an operator. And if you'll remember, in 1994, we did have computers, but we didn't have Microsoft. And so a lot of these programs were created either by a specific hospital, uh, IT, or they were created 
as a package that you would buy. And so our surgery scheduling program was kind of like a Outlook calendar that allowed you to populate quite a bit of stuff, but was specific only to surgery and it didn't go anywhere. It wasn't connected to the internet. We also were required to print about 20 schedules and walk them around the hospital to different departments that were going to be impacted by the surgery schedule. And because we were slow around Christmas time, myself and another coworker thought it'd be funny if we scheduled people that we worked with for an anal condyloma surgery removal. First up was Fartley. We added her to the schedule, printed it, walked it all around the departments. We even took it to the switchboard, which is where she worked. And when she came in that day, she had seen that on the schedule was her name for an anal condyloma surgery with removal of warts. I could literally hear her calling me from the switchboard. Fucking Joe, you gotta get my name off of there. And we died laughing. We thought it was so damn funny. And these days, People were a lot more relaxed about this kind of thing. Today, you would totally have been fired and maybe even brought up on charges of HIPAA violation. Another thing that we would do during this month because it was so slow is we would do what we called chair races where we would get a rolling chair and we'd find the two skinniest people or smallest people. One was always me. Another one was this girl named Lisa. And they would tape us to the chairs. And because hospitals and ORs have really long hallways, they would run you with the chair as fast as they could and push you as fast as they could down the hall. And your responsibility was to use your legs to try to not hit the wall or tip over and get to the end and win. Again, I'm sure that workplace injury would not approve of this today. When I was finally trained to be an anesthesia tech, I would get there at five in the morning and do runs on all the machines, doing the quality, making sure that the machines were stocked, making sure that all the different components were working and that were alarming appropriately to what the settings were for our specific department. This was also the time that I had a fake ID and I would go out with my friend Debbie from hell and we would drink until about four in the morning. And so I would come to the hospital and I'd grab a long extension and put it on one of the anesthesia carts, turn on the oxygen as high as it would go. And I would walk from machine to machine with a nasal cannula on with oxygen to wake up and sometimes sober up. One of the anesthesiologists that worked for us that I would do his checks on his machine was a doctor by the name of Dr. Sayo. Dr. Sayo was a unbelievably amazing doctor, really nice guy, but his English was lacking. And whenever he would walk by a room where we were doing cysto procedures, which is where you're looking at different parts of a kidney or ureters, bladder, there is oftentimes a lot of fluid that is used in that procedure. And so you'd have these really large suction canisters with fluid or urine. And he would walk by and go, oh, looking like a pee-pee. And that became the running joke of the department. Oh, looking like a pee-pee. We even told my friend Fartlene's sister that we spoke Asian. And that was one of the phrases we do. At this age, I still believed that doctors were glamorous and amazing beings until we all shared a locker room together. And the anesthesiologists would come in and they would have really dingy shirts, mismatched socks or holes in their socks, holes in their underwear. And I was so disgusted by it that to this day when someone says, oh, he's an anesthesiologist, I'm like, filthy, no thank you. Their trust in me grew and grew and they eventually taught me how to scrub more and more procedures. And one day they called upon me to do one of the coolest things I thought was the coolest at that time and my mother always says, please don't come home and tell any more stories from the operating room. And it was, I scrubbed and sat there 
completely scrubbed gown, gloves, everything, with a giant box that had a big red biohazard bag in the inside of it. And I waited. And I watched them burn, cut, cut, burn, break. And they eventually handed me this lady's leg. And I took it and I put it in the box. I closed it all up and I walked it over to the lab. And as I was walking to the lab, Fartlean was in the cafeteria and I waved to her as I had my leg walking to the lab. And when I told my mom that story, she was like, that's horrible. Don't bring home any more of these stories. One of the hazing rituals when you start in an operating room is the first time you scrub a sterile procedure, they put your gloves on and inside of them is sterile KY. So you have to do the whole procedure with sterile KY in your gloves, assholes. One day we all got called to the manager's office. There was a very important thing they needed to discuss with us. It was a male patient who had come into the emergency room that had a foreign body stuck in his rectum and they needed to debrief us on it. First, they told us you could not talk about the foreign body in his rectum because his family is with him. Number two, you were to pick him up, review the consent, bring him back and do not say anything. This is of extreme sensitivity. So I went to go get him. I grabbed the consent. We reviewed that it was a foreign body. That was all we said. And he kissed his family goodbye. And I brought him into the operating room. As we were putting him to sleep, he stated, I need it back. It's my daughter's. The foreign body, that is. Now, at this time, I didn't know what the foreign body was because they didn't tell us very much and we were to not ask too many questions. One of our older general surgeons came in. He put on a pair of gloves. He reached into this guy's rectum pulled out a pink vibrator and held it in the air and said, I have the power, like He-Man. And I thought I was going to die. He then took it and put it on a sterile tray where there was a ruler, which is customary that you measure it because you need to know how big it was. And then it goes to the lab. But before he did that, he took pictures with it sterilely. It was the funniest fucking thing. The patient was asleep, so the patient didn't know any of this, but we were all dying. And no, we didn't give him back his daughter's vibrator. It went to the lab and they threw it or destroyed it when they were done with it. I quickly learned that I was very naive and that I needed to grow up in this position. There was a coworker of mine by the name of Dustin who had told me that one of the nurses' names was Jenny and that originally she was a man and her name was Geraldine and that I should ask her about it. So one day I got the courage to ask her about it and she flipped the fuck out and I had to go talk to the manager and he actually got in more trouble than I did because he was the one who egged me on. But I learned very quickly, you can't believe everything your coworkers tell you. Dustin had also told me that one of our sterile processing um, individuals by the name of Gertrude used to be a friend of Hitler's and I should ask her about it. Well, dumb me, I asked her about it and she cursed me out in German and from that day on she never would talk to me. I also learned how to respond to, hey Joe, where are you going with that gun in your hand? To shoot my old lady. A nurse that worked in the recovery room, for some reason, hated me. I could not figure out why she hated me. I was a 19-year-old kid who was just trying to help out and do what I could. And so one day she was extremely mean to me. And I said to her, why do you hate me so much? And she said, excuse me, young man, come with me back here. And she walked me to the back and she said to me, I don't hate you, but it is hard for me to listen and look at you. And I said, why? She said, because you remind me of my brother that committed suicide. I immediately felt like shit. But she reassured me that it was just her own thing. And come to find out, her and I have the same birthday. 
And every year, no matter where I am in my life, she always sends me a card, a message, a text that always says, I hope you're having a good time on your birthday. And I've always loved that her and I had that connection. When I was 20, Dustin and some of the other guys that worked in the department had this Super Bowl bet going. And so I, still acting straight and being in the closet, decided I would be part of the Super Bowl bet. Well, I lost. And for losing, I had to get my nipple pierced. So I got my nipple pierced and kept it in for the six months that it was required, and then I took it out. That same year, they had given me a radiation detection device because I was doing more procedures where there was fluoroscopy or a C-arm. And no one had really explained to me what it was and what I'd do with it. So I just put it on my badge and would throw my badge on my dash every day when I would get off work. It would sit in my car all day and all night, and then I would wear it the next day. One day... The manager came to me and said, Joe, I need to speak to you. It's an emergency and it's urgent. And so I went to her office and I said, what's going on? She goes, the Department of Public Health and the state of California are coming to arrest you. And I'm like, why? She explained that my radiation device had been exposed to a hundred times more of what a person could legally have in their lifetime. And they needed to interview me and arrest me because they thought that I was actively around or had a source of radiation. So I had to explain exactly what I had done and my error, and they had me sign an affidavit and finally cleared me of it, which thank God, because I'm a radiation worker. Not getting that cleared up would have never allowed me to work in the United States. Oh, stop, stop, stop. I know I'm radiant, but this was a different type of radiant. One of my other tasks when I worked in the OR was to help with closing documentation, which is where when you're doing an abdominal surgery, you have to go through a checklist to make sure that all your sponges are accounted for, all of your sutures are accounted for, all your instruments are accounted for. And one of the questions is for abdominal surgery, did you check the colon? So anytime someone loses something, I always say, did you check the colon? Which I think is hilarious, but people oftentimes think it's associated to me being gay. No, it's because of surgery, ding-dongs. In 1997, I left, moved to Chicago, and started my advanced studies in radiation technology and physics. I ended up getting a certificate in that, a bachelor's degree, and then I finished a master's, dual master's. I, I got three different master's graduate certificates and did an internship in interventional radiology, which is where I work today. Right out of college, I worked two jobs. I was doing my internship study in interventional radiology, and I would work in radiology every evening from nine until midnight, and on Saturday and Sundays, if available, I would do one or double shifts in the emergency room. Now, my little community hospital in Turlock, California was nothing like the level one medical center that I worked at in Chicago. The level one medical center all night long was traumas left and right. It was the closest hospital to some of the worst neighborhoods that had gang-associated shootings. And so you'd oftentimes get shootings or different types of car accidents. It was just busy, busy, busy. One night, I got called to a trauma in the trauma bay, and I went, and I pulled back the curtain, and there was a guy with a dick sitting out and what appeared to look like balls. So I went and found the trauma surgeon, and I asked her what exactly she wanted. She wanted me to do avoiding cysta, which meant I put a catheter into someone's penis, and... Uh, injected contrast dye and as the contrast dye came out I would image it and then look at it to see if the urethra was still intact because what had happened was 
he was having sex with his best friend's wife and his best friend walked in and grabbed his scrotum and completely pulled it off of his balls. Now, this guy had a huge ass dick and that scrotum looked disgusting, but his dick was the most disgusting looking dick you'd ever seen. He was so proud of it. He had it out like, hey, look at my big dick. But it had looked like the gutters after pride when they're trying to clean everything up and there's like gum and like tumbleweaves and like leaves and all these just weird things, weird scars. It looked like it had literally been drugged through a gutter and that's what his dick looked like. And that wasn't because of what his friend did. It just looked like he had stuck it in any fucking crevice that he possibly could and had every type of scar on it. Another night, I got called into somebody with a foreign body in their rectum. And when I took the images, I went to go pull previous images to look at them to see if there was any changes within the specific anatomy that I was looking at. And I noticed that the previous image was the same 14 inch dildo. So I went back and talked to the patient and I said, okay, here's what you need to do next time. You don't need to come here. You need to get in a bath. You need to take maybe an ibuprofen or something and just relax. It will come out. Stop sticking it so far and you won't have to come into the emergency room. If you come to my house today, I have that x-ray on a light box in my bathroom. In my early career, I saw a lot of crazy shit. I saw a person who had had a calcified baby that they didn't know was in them for over 50 years. I saw a person who went to Greece and ate tainted lamb meat that ended up giving them these pustules that were all over their body that we had to puncture with saline to kill them. I saw a girl who tried to make LSD with rye bread and ended up giving herself Argot syndrome where her legs ended up getting so huge and giant and purple because the veins had clamped down that they had to do fasciotomies. And one of my most favorite stories ever. There was a nurse who has now passed. His name was Michael. He was an amazing, amazing nurse. He had this blonde highlighted hair and he worked more than anybody I ever knew. He worked at our department in interventional radiology. He worked at the hospital that I went to school at as an ICU nurse. And he did um, metaflight nursing where he would take people with advanced cancer on an airplane back home so that they could go home and they would have nursing care on the airplane. Well, one day we had this guy who came in and Michael was rather flamboyant and from the South. And the guy came in and he had tons of tattoos. And Michael said to him, wow, you sure have a lot of tattoos. Who's Irma? And I'm like, Michael. Guy says, a girl that I was really into. And he goes, oh, those tattoos look like they were expensive. Did you pay for them all? Or did you get them in prison? The guy explained he got them in prison. And I'm literally looking at Michael thinking, oh my God, stop. Michael then says, what did you go to prison for? He says, for robbing a bank. And Michael says, oh yeah, how much did you get? And he said, $1,300. Michael said, was that worth it? And the guy just kind of looked at us. Come to find out, he was the head of like a major gang in Chicago. And Michael was just chitty chatting with him about Irma going to prison and robbing a bank. Tragically, one night, poor Michael went on a break from the ICU and went into the break room. And he didn't come back from his break and they went to go find him and he had died in his sleep. But every time that patient would come back, we would make up fake names so he wouldn't know who we were because we were always afraid he was going to come after us because of fucking Michael. We had a blind patient who was super, super sweet and she always asked for me. It didn't matter where I was, what room. She would, you could hear her literally when she got into the room. She'd go, I want Joe, I want Joe. And so one day she said to me, she wanted to write a nice letter about my treatment of her every time I was, she was there. So I told her, that's fine, but you have to make sure that you let them know that I'm devastatingly handsome and super duper tall. 
So one day my manager calls me in and she says, Joe, the CEO wanted to know, wanted to let you know that he got a letter about you and it was from one of our patients and she talked about how devastatingly handsome you were and how tall you were. And I just died laughing because I knew who it was. I will let you know that until the day that I die, I will still consider myself tall. All right, let's take a little break and then we'll come back into the present. In 2015, I left Chicago and found my way to the West, and I became an assistant director first and then a director of imaging over a large medical center in San Francisco. One of my areas that I covered was ultrasound. You may or may not know that ultrasound is predominantly staffed with women, and they can be quite a challenge, I will let you know, as one of my departments was in San Francisco. On this day in 2017, I had just parked my car in front of my apartment in San Francisco and my work phone rang. And on the other end was the coordinator for the ultrasound department, screaming at the top of her lungs. Oh my God, Joe. Oh my God, Joe. Joe. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God, Joe. Joe. And I'm like, Amy, calm down. What's going on? She's like, oh my God, Joe. You're never going to believe what happened. You're never going to believe what happened. I'm like, Amy, relax. Tell me what's going on. In the background, I can hear the sonographer going, oh my God, Joe, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm just like, what the hell happened? So Amy begins to tell the story. A patient from the emergency room was sent to the ultrasound department and they were not given a briefing on who the patient was. When the patient arrived to the ultrasound department, she asked if she could use the restroom, which is usually contraindicated when you're doing an OB study because you want the bladder to be really full because water is one of the mediums that we use in order to be able to acquire imaging with ultrasound. The patient persisting and being uncomfortable, they said, go ahead. They could always give her more water once she had gone to the restroom. Now, I'm going to tell you what I know. The patient came down from the emergency room for what is called a missed AB study. It is where early on in a very early pregnancy, you actually miscarry and so they need to go in and complete an ultrasound study to make sure that all of the portions that were responsible for it are still either intact or they have either dislodged or just to do an overall survey of the overall fetus and the placenta and woman's abdomen. And I say fetus, but really this woman was pregnant about two months. So you weren't really able to see much of a fetus at this point. The patient, not completely aware that she had completely miscarried at this point, decided she would go to the restroom. She went to the restroom, and when she sat down, she felt something come out, and as she stood up, she turned around to look into the toilet, and the automatic flush of the toilet flushed it away. We now return back to Amy on the phone with me. Oh my God, Joe, oh my God. She went to the bathroom, she went to the bathroom, and then she she felt something and she got up and was she like, look, the toilet flushed it down, it flushed the baby, Joe. I literally was on the corner of Bush and Hyde in San Francisco and I thought I was gonna drop my phone and my mouth was completely dropped because I was like, what the fuck and how am I going to solve this? My first thought was, I probably need to call the engineering department because they can probably get into the septic system of somehow and maybe get the baby back. I was like, I don't even know what to do. I had Amy the coordinator hysterical, the patient hysterical, and the sonographer hysterical. So I told Amy, 
let me get off the phone and I'm going to make a couple calls and, or I'll come back. I'll be right there. So I had just met the new ER evening manager. And so I called him and I said, I need a huge favor. Patient went to ultrasound. They let her go to the bathroom. She believes that she passed the baby and it went in the toilet and the automatic flush when she got up, as she looked at it, flushed it down the toilet. Can you please go check for me what is going on? Guy being such a nice guy said, yeah, I'll go check and I'll let you know when I find out and I'll call you back. In the meantime, I must have smoked probably, oh, half a pack of cigarettes uh, for my emergency stack because I just could not believe it. And I was still thinking to myself, how the hell am I going to explain this one? And how are we going to get that baby back? Remember, at this point, I don't know how far along she is. After about 20 minutes, the nursing manager from the emergency room calls me back and says, everything's okay, Joe, you can relax. He's like, the patient went to the bathroom and she passed clots and she thought it was a baby and so she panicked and yes when she got up she went to look in the toilet and the automatic flush flushed it down immediately i had the most amazing sigh of relief i couldn't even believe it but i will tell you this the following day work orders were placed and in ultrasound in san francisco there were no more automatic flushing toilets that story has gotten me very, very far. It has so much longevity and people just love hearing it, especially when I tell it in person because I get really excited and do their voices. It's hilarious. But now something that's not hilarious. At the same medical center in September of 2017, I was notified that the state of California would be coming in to do their annual radiation safety audit. They were two years behind and so I was to do an audit prior to them coming and then submit that as part of the audit when they arrived. The audit visit was scheduled for January of 2018, and so I had plenty of time to prepare. As I started to conduct my audit, things started to become unclear. There was a lot of things that didn't make any sense. And I remember talking to a friend of mine from college, and she said, Joe, get out of there now. And I thought, why would you say that? What's the big deal? And I'll tell you, I wish I would have heed that warning. We had pieces of equipment that were not registered. We had people that were operating this equipment that had no training. We had people who were operating um, equipment that have, were coming from outside with dentists that had not even completed a basic health survey to come into the hospital. We had equipment that had usage that had no patient information or any documentation on how much radiation was utilized. And the worst, was we had a hybrid room that when I did the audit on, I found 31 patients had been overexposed to radiation to the point of acute radiation syndrome, which could be a leading factor of the reason why these 31 patients died. So I take my findings to our risk management team, my leadership team, and very quickly, I was told that I needed to figure out how to resolve this and hide it as they were not going to bring it forward to the state. I'm an immigrant. My parents taught me right and wrong. I don't even like to throw litter on the ground. I follow laws and rules as much as I can. And I believe in regulatory and ethics very much so when it comes to patients. And so this troubled me quite a bit. I went back and forth on what I should do. I lost lots of sleep. I woke up a couple times in panic attacks. I literally was going insane trying to figure out how I was going to address this 
because I did not want to cover up or hide something from the state, which I believed we could address and could fix. So on February 8th, when the state arrived, they began conducting their first part of their audit, which was to review my audit. The information regarding the 31 patients was omitted at the time, but I changed my mind, or I should say, I finally decided what I was gonna do, and I closed all the doors and asked that all the other members who were part of this audit that were from the medical center, please leave, and they did, and I came forward and became a whistleblower. The first part of my discussion with the state took about an hour and a half, which I learned later that during that hour and a half, the team that I had asked to leave the room had gone under the direction of my vice president and started changing documents and modifying the dates and information on individual documents, which I later found because I had access to the originals and the medical exec committee who approves all of these documents and was submitted to me the originals and then the modifications. They had also had forgotten that they had sent me to Milwaukee to learn how to do basic computer programming for our MRIs, our CTs, our electronic medical record. And so I knew how to do code on very specific things. Well, I was able to run code on all of these documents and I found the person who went in, the words that they edited, the time and date, and I was able to acquire all that information as well. Immediately following my meeting, my organization completely took me off the audit. They also took me off meetings and isolated me and provided me with tons of work to try to overload me to fail as they continued on with the audit and let the auditors know that I had stepped away because of other obligations that they would need me at. What they didn't know was that the district attorney of the state of California was in contact with me because the first part of it was they had to clear me from the actual accusations that I had whistleblown about. I was cleared within a couple days and they proceeded to then do their investigation. And after two weeks, they had all the information they needed and they proceeded to leave stating that they would put together their findings and any infractions as well as any fines that would be associated with it. And they did a debriefing. In the debriefing, they stated that the organization was fortunate enough that they had an individual such as myself who came forward and provided the state with the documentation and information that they needed in order to continue to operate safely and to protect the patients of the state of California. You would have thought that I would have won an award, right? Nope. From that day forward, no one talked to me. I was completely isolated and I had tons of work that was given to me to try to resolve all of the findings that the state had indicated, I had to fix. They gave it to me to fix. So I fixed all of the findings, which was great because I already knew what the infractions were and I knew how to resolve them. I actually provided these solutions to them when I notified them of what I found, but they didn't want to do anything about it. For six months, I pretty much was retaliated against and tortured to the point that I felt many times that I was going insane. Now, in my insanity, I couldn't sleep oftentimes at night, and so I would read legal cases regarding medical retaliation um, and whistleblowing, and I would read jury's notes, winners, losers, attorney's briefings, judges' findings on many different cases, and I would take notes, 
And on Saturdays and Sundays, I would go to my office and I would photocopy and print different documents just in able to support and to protect myself should anything else happen. I have over 8,000 pages, no patient information, but 8,000 pages proving their guilt in three different locations. A month prior, I had been looking at purchasing a home in an area called Guerneville, California, which is the Russian River, and was under contract and had put a transfer in to leave San Francisco to go to Santa Rosa, not disgruntled at all, but more so just to be closer to where I was looking to buy a home. My transfer was denied and I was not allowed to transfer. In March, performance bonuses were reviewed and performance evaluations were given. I did not receive one. And so I questioned why I hadn't received one. And so in April, I was given my performance evaluation and told that I needed to go on a performance improvement plan and did not receive a bonus that year. I left July 1st and from April to July 1st, I never once had any performance improvement plan implemented or met with anybody regarding it. Memorial Day weekend of 2018, I decided I was done. I no longer wanted to continue there. I didn't care if I was not following all the right tracks in order to try to sue them for retaliation. I wanted out because my sanity was starting to go. The minute I gave my notice, clarity, the weirdest clarity ever. What I realized was the whole reason, one, I was given the audit was because the director who was there prior to me who had been promoted and my boss who had been the manager and the director over the area which had the radiation exposures was the one who was responsible for all of it. Remember I said that they were two years behind? Well, these two individuals were the ones who were responsible for it and they needed a fall guy and that was me. Me being the gentleman that I was and the ethical person that I am, I put together five binders with hundreds of pages of everything that I did and everything that I do regularly and how they could go forward. I gave them access to my cell phone, to my computer. I let them uh, review all of the documents that were in my computer. I even renamed them so they could easily acquire them. And I left on July 1st. Two weeks after I left, I got a phone call from one of them asking if I could help them into a program where the radiation exposures are located. And a week after that, I got a text message asking if I could give them my cell phone password as they wanted to reuse it for somebody else and they didn't know how to get into it. And, and IT had suggested that they contact me. Now, I don't know how many of you are, know about corporate IT, but that's bullshit. Corporate IT would never say, can you call the employee who no longer works here and ask him for his password on his iPhone so we can get into it? Yeah. I conveniently forgot all those passwords because it had been... a couple weeks now and so they had to return my phone back to IT and little did they know I had already erased it. So I moved to Seattle primarily to kill myself because of going through this whole thing. I was in the, an unbelievable position in my life. My career was over. I felt I was completely post-traumatic stress and traumatized from the whole thing and I didn't trust people in leadership or my profession very much at all at that point. And in the meantime, I met my best friend, Jay, who lives in Portland, and he had just had a partner that died quickly from a metastatic disease, and we both say that we kind of saved each other. And so that is how I got here to Seattle. I know, not as funny as flushing blood clots down the toilet. I did meet with an attorney right after I moved here, and we discussed what 
the options were and what my tolerance was. And he had explained to me that it would be a public trial and it would be about two years. And I stated, I'm not interested. Thank you. And I didn't do anything because of that reason. I wanted to just get my life back. I read a quote shortly after from a woman who had also been a whistleblower for CT scanning in LA where her CT scanner was overexposing patients to the tune of over 500 people had cancer because of it. And she stated, I knew what I had to do, but it was the worst thing I ever did. And that's how I felt. Oh, and it gets better. Because this medical center was such a large and very rich medical center, the state never gave him all the findings. So they ended up only having minor infractions and no fines. How about that for state regulators? Back to funny stories. When I first started interventional radiology, I was not aware that I was gonna have to prep as many patient growings as I do. Uh, because we use the femoral artery many times as our approach to get into the body, we have to prep the groin. I prepped this gentleman's groin and I used the core prep type of sticks to prep out his groin. And his penis was there and pretty predominant, but it didn't bother me. Either way, because I just needed to get my prepping done and whatnot. When I went to put my drape down, the drape has these circles that are adhesive that have a cutout in it so that you can stick it to the body, but then also have the cutout so then you can actually access where the anatomy underneath it is. As I put it down, the adhesive part got stuck to the head of his penis. And every time I tried to lift the drape up to get it to fall off, it would accordion, it would keep going up and down and up and down. And I was new and I was panicked. I didn't know what I was gonna do. So finally, I figured it out. I had to flick his dick off the drape and it hurt him pretty bad. He kind of like flinched, but he was kind of sedated so he didn't realize it and I was mortified. One day I got called and told that I needed to assist on a very different procedure that I had never done, a vaginal drain insertion. Now, while I'm not afraid of vaginas, I just by choice try to stay away from them. They have those sharp teeth and those really funny orangutan lips. And so I just try to stay away from them. Just a man of purpose. But for this procedure, I had to prep the patient's vagina. And we use an agent called chlorhexidine, which is an alcohol-based agent. And I'm like, I don't think that's really good for the vagina. And so I got betadine and I was taking some 4x4s and some sponges and dipping it lightly into the solution and kind of cleaning around. Not really sure if I should clean inside. And one of our doctors, who is a bull in a china shop with nine and a half gloves, comes in and says, Joe, no, 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 no and grabs a giant pack of four by fours, sticks it in the betadine solution, and just starts punching this woman's vagina inside and out as he cleans it. And I literally thought I was gonna die. 
This was also around the same time that I was taught to smell abscess fluid to detect whether or not it was percolant, meaning it had pus in it. And I can tell you what, still to this day, I can tell you just from the smell. Now that I've grossed you out enough, I have another funny story, and then I will tell you one last inspirational story, and I'll let you go for the evening. There was a patient who I got called in for, a bird emergency. She had a biliary duct that was completely constrained with a stone in it. And so the bile wasn't flowing regularly and it was causing her to become sick and could possibly cause it to back up and eventually end up into her blood system, which could cause her to go uh, septic. So we pick her up, you know, as normal and talk to her, do consenting and everything and do the procedure. And right before the procedure is done, she says to me, hey, would you do me a favor? And I said, depends, what's that? She said, would you put a sheet over my head and tell my husband that I died? Now, I have a really good sense of humor and I'm kind of morbid, but even that was too fucked up for me. And could you imagine doing that to somebody and then them not reacting well or having a heart attack themselves and trying to explain to your boss or administration of a hospital that you were just playing a joke? Oh my God. One of the areas that I have to cover uh, is neurointerventional, which covers the brain. And so we do a lot of stroke intervention where we go in with a little flexible kind of corkscrew device and get it past the clot. And then we will place another catheter that has suction onto it and try to suck out the clot from inside the artery where the occlusion is happening at that time during the stroke. Now, I've been doing this since 2004. So I'm pretty well versed and I'm pretty quick. But on this night, I worked with this amazing physician here in Seattle, and we just had this unbelievable flow. From the minute the patient walked into our door to the minute we pulled the clot out of her brain was 15 minutes. That was the fastest time I've ever done that in my life. 20 minutes before she came to the hospital, she was in a grocery store buying herbs, and she had a stroke and had no idea that any of it had happened which is so amazing to me that medicine has gotten to this level where we can actually do this and save people's brains and their ability to continue on in life. And post thrombectomy, she was completely fine, had no neuro deficits and was able to leave the next day. And why? Because the technical staff she had was super tall and dreamy. Me, damn it. As you know, I do enjoy telling stories and I enjoy telling these stories. But for general purposes, I usually don't talk much about my work. Why? Because it's job. It, everyone has one. My father taught me very young that it didn't matter if you went to college or not, that you weren't better than anyone. You just might know something more than someone. So I try to respect everyone's job and not make anyone feel like they're less than or that I'm better than because of what I do. It's just what I chose. In college, I cleaned offices at night. I worked in every area of radiology that I could before I had finished school. I worked two jobs and I truly believe that every job is important. It is important that somebody does it for us. It's important that they're there. And so I treat everyone with equal respect for the job that they do as well as the job that I do. So I usually don't talk about my medicine work and all these different things because sometimes it makes people feel less than or as if their job is less important. And I honestly don't believe that. And it is a job. That's why they pay us, because they're all horrible, honestly. And speaking of jobs, this podcast is extremely late. It normally goes out over the weekend, and because I've been on call for the last five days, and I also worked at another hospital to help them out, I have not had a moment 
Um, it's just been a really crazy week. My contract that I was uh, anticipating to go to California with fell through due to all kinds of different issues that could not be explained. My new convertible ended up dying on the highway because of an alternator issue, which it's now in the shop. And a coworker of mine sassed me to the point that I had to pray to St. Francis because I thought I was going to go ballistic and have a heart attack myself. But that being said, I want to say thank you. You have given me the opportunity to speak. Obviously, I'm a talker. But with purpose and with meaning and to express myself in a way that I've not been able to. And I thank you so much. I thank everybody who each week listens. The numbers are getting greater and greater. And I'm just so appreciative. So remember, tell your friends, write a review, leave some feedback. And this is a Mo story. I hope that you have an amazing weekend. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. And if you lose something... Remember, check the colon.